Hello, everyone. What you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode was originally record. Uh, it aired live, wasn't recorded. This was blog talk days. Uh, in preparation for the release of Man of Steel, so I should tell you about the air date, it originally aired June 12th of 2013. This features a conversation between myself and Pat Mullen about the rogues gallery of Superman. And we have some fun. We get into it. We get into some pretty decent detail. You know, Superman has a very good rogues gallery, all things considered. It tends to be a bit underappreciated, but you know, we go into not just the big ones, but some of the small, some of the lesser known ones who still manage to be good villains and oppositions for the big blue boy scout, as the phrase goes. So. Thank you very much, and big thanks to Pat, as always, for his contributions uh, in the past and ongoing. So, thank you for listening as well. I'm going to throw it to my past self. Hope you all enjoy the show. Uh, there's other 
there are variables. There is life outside of podcasting for everyone involved. So we go to two hours, and we're including Luther, and we're hitting the big one. That's right. Lots of time. Lots of bad guys. Who challenged Superman? Who had any measure of success against him? Were they good villains? Were they forgettable? Were they memorable? Is there anything even worth discussing here? Well, yes, I think so. His rogues gallery is actually quite impressive. But you don't have to listen to me for two hours, ramble on and on and on and on and on. Though I could do it. Don't tempt me. I have a guest. I do have a guest. I have. He's been here before. He was ridiculously insightful when talking about James Bond bad guys. That's a two-parter. Look it up if you haven't heard it. Great stuff. Please welcome back to the Bad Guy Show, Pat Mullen, everybody. How are you doing, Pat? Uh, doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me back. Uh, just to get in the mood for the show today, I threatened people with an EMP. I uh, kicked some puppies. I stepped on some flowers, so I'm ready to rock. Well, I can support everything except kicking the puppies. Uh, you know, I may live the bad guy lifestyle from time to time. I can't be mean to puppies. I don't know what it is. Or little kittens. In uh, pre- prep for this, I did, however, throw cats around because I think it's amusing at times to kind of toss cats in the air. I'm a bad person, I know, ladies and gentlemen, I know. That's why I host this show and not dis- and I don't discuss heroes. So, the rogues gallery of Superman. Give me your quick overall impressions of it. I mean, he's got some good ones in there. Just your overall thoughts on the bad guys that have opposed Superman. What it takes to, you know, why Superman in particular needs such a strong list of opposition. Your thoughts on, you know, some of those guys. What it takes to be a Superman bad guy. Just your overall thoughts on what it takes to oppose the Man of Steel with any degree of success. Well, I think Superman has probably one of the more underrated rogues galleries in, in all of, in all you know, really, you know, just fiction in general and, and characters, not just comic books. And that's no surprise when you consider the character has been around since 1938. You're going to have to challenge him and come up with, you know, good characters to really make his stories interesting. And I think there's a lot of them out there that they've done very well with. Some of them, of course, are duds. That's going to happen. But I, I think they've done a good job with creating challenging villains for him. And I think I think what really separates his great villains from the, the lame ducks, as they were, is that they challenge more than his physical abilities. Sometimes they make Superman kind of question his own confidence and if he really has what it takes to stand up, can he accomplish these tasks as a man? And I, I think that's always the key to the great Superman stories is it's not just about testing his raw physical ability. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, it's cool when you see him really exert his full power because he does it so rarely. But when he really has to dig deep and has to not only think his way out of the situation, but has to really look inside of himself. And I think those villains who push that button that can make, you know, the world's most powerful being doubt himself, I think that's when you really see their success. Because the guy has no reason to dick himself for all of his physical and even his mental abilities, but they can make him do it. And once they get to that point, there's always that chance for overall success against I agree, especially about his rogues gallery being pretty good. And one of the reasons I think for that is, you know, Superman is not a flat character in and of him. I mean, because he is so multidimensional in various aspects, but Superman is not terribly difficult to understand, to work, to get, you know, he's truth, justice in the American way. He saves the day, you know, that, that's a bit kind of one note, so to speak, but he is such a fascinating character because you get, when you get behind, when you get outside of the, he's fighting somebody and you look at how he portrays Clark Kent and his, the duality, I think, between Clark Kent and Superman 
is so incredibly fascinating when uh, just from a even from like a character study or an actor's study because Clark Kent is I mean, even versions of Superman and Clark Kent that have included you know he's not always a bumbling reporter who trips over everything he's not a small town hick all the time there's still such an incredible difference between the two and then when you throw in for want of a better phrase forgive me here when you throw in Kal-El when he's not being Superman he's not being Clark Kent he's just like in the fortress of solitude he's hanging out with Lois or you know, there's there are different facets to Superman that make him interesting but you need an incredibly powerful or intriguing opposing force to something like that. I mean, you know, Batman, For let me say this, Batman, I think, hands down, probably the best rogues gallery. I mean, I haven't gone through all of them and looked at them, but Batman, one of the best, easily. And the crazy thing about Batman is he doesn't necessarily need it. Batman, in and of himself, as a character, as, you know, being conflicted and dark and brooding and all of the stuff that goes with being Batman, he doesn't necessarily need the great, well-written, opposing force that something like Superman needs. I mean, Batman has a couple of duds in his rogues gallery. Let's, I mean, he has the great, he has great ones. He has absolutely phenomenal villains, and I am going to do one of these, a series of these. I could probably make a series out of the Batman villains. And But he even the mediocre villains, for want of a better phrase, I mean, some of them are nothing more than crime bosses. No, There's nothing special about them. They his stories with them are still interesting, are still intriguing, because Superman, because, sorry, not Superman, because Batman in and of himself is so intriguing, is so, such a deep character. Whereas with Superman, if you get a dud villain, it stands out a bit more. And Batman, I think, without, I mean, you could take away the Joker, the Riddler, Two-Face, Catwoman, I mean, you could reduce, even if Batman, all he did was take on his B-level villains, that's still intriguing, that's still interesting, I think. And, it's a credit to people who have been involved in Superman over the years that, like you said, he's been around since the 30s, and he's never really lost a lot of steam. I mean, yes, comic book sales have gone up and down, and interest may have waned from time to time, but he's still been there, and he'll probably be there forever. I mean, he's that much of a constant in the DC universe and in, you know, even beyond the realm of, you know, comics and movies, people like the idea of Superman, by and large. He's, he's the premier pop culture icon when you really think about it. I agree. He is, you know, he is he is the DC flagship hero. You know, uh, if you guys, if anyone listening reads 411 Mania, and you absolutely should, um, I think it's Steve Gustafson that does the 411 comics column every week. It's him or Sean it Lelos. It's Gustafson, yeah. And Sean Lelos, who writes, other, he does the alternate takes, also in the movies and television zone, both of those. And they are great looks at the comic world and all things that deal with comic books. And they recently, a while ago, recently, somewhat recently, they discussed that Superman is, you know, he's Mr. DC. He's the DC flagship. He's the one that, when you think of DC comics, there's Superman and then there's Batman. And Batman may be in more places. He's got, you know, five or six different titles, great movies, bad movies, various television shows, animated and live action. But Batman is everywhere, but it's still... Superman is kind of the face of DC Comics. He's still, even with the popularity of Batman, Superman is that is still a very enduring character and still, he, I mean, he's still very much well thought of. People are psyched for Man of Steel coming out, and it's been it's been a while since the last Superman movie, and that would be Superman Returns, and it's been a while, and there's still excitement. He's still, 
He's still relevant. He's still pretty awesome. But we are here. We're not here to sing the praises of Superman or talk about Superman. That's a different show. That's a different discussion. We talk about bad guys here, the opposing force, the villains. And let's do it now. Let's get it out of the way. You can't talk Superman without talking about Lex Luthor. He's the Superman villain. He's the opposing force. Pat, talk to me about Luther. Talk to me about the bald criminal genius, the greatest criminal mind the world has ever known, former president of the United States, theoretically, hypothetically. He is. He becomes president. That's not a spoiler. It's been on for a while. Talk to me about Lex Luthor, Pat. Talk to me about the consummate evil businessman, sociopath, obsessed bad guy. Well, everybody's got to have their, their diametric polar opposite. And in the case of Superman, it's Lex. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, even though Luthor has been pictured mainly as Superman's primary antagonist through all of his interpretations, it didn't start out as that. Lex really started out as a, a friend of Superman and the character's origin. They were actually both from Smallville, Kansas, and basically what happened was their first interaction was Superboy had, when Superman was in his youth and flying around as a teenager, he had some kind of exposure to kryptonite, and Lex Luthor, who was a brilliant scientific mind, actually saved Superboy's life. As a result of his gratitude, Superboy built Lex a very high-tech lab out of a barn, and basically what happened was they were good friends until one day Superboy on patrol flying around Smallville sees this fire in Lex's lab and being the good Samaritan that he is, he sees Lex is, you know, going to die in this. So what he does is he uses his super breath to blow away the flames. And unfortunately, one of the results is that some chemical concoctions mix with the gust of wind and cause Lex's hair to fall out. And so Lex, who was an extremely vain guy even then, which for reasons I can't understand because he was a ginger, but nonetheless, very vain. He got very angry, accused Superboy of, out of jealousy and wanting to halt whatever his brilliant scientific mind could do to not rival his attention. And from then on, Luther was depicted as a mad scientist type of villain before the billionaire industrialist. He was building giant robots and, and high-tech devices to combat Superman and prove his own greatness. And it always backfired on him, so he was actually even... a kind of a bumbling character up until the mid-80s when John Byrne, who kind of reinvented the whole Superman mythos, uh, took over, and Luther's depiction was changed where he was not, you know, the mad scientist. He was actually a very wealthy industrialist who couldn't cope with the fact that once Superman showed up in Metropolis, Luther went from being the number one guy in town to being a very solid number two. And, again, the ego issue stands out, and that's fine, but this time he was... He wasn't just the mad scientist. He was a criminal mastermind who had various million resources at his disposal and rather than get his hands dirty, oftentimes came up with ways of, you know, testing Superman. And actually in the first interaction, he staged a fake kidnapping on a boat just to test the limit to Superman's powers and attempt to buy him off. He handed him a blank check to put him on retainer. And Superman basically tells him in front of the press and all of Metropolis society, I can't be bought, Mr. Luther, which immediately makes Lex look like a chump, and Lex has never forgiven him for it. It makes him look like a scumbag industrialist, which, hey, he is. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's fascinating to see. He went from, you know, kind of a, a one-trick pony mad scientist constantly failing with his giant robots that he seemed to have an endless array of, despite the fact he wasn't a billionaire. He, they, they, I forget which writer it was. I think it might have been Jeff John kind of, 
pointed out that, you know, the Lex never, character never spoke to him in the Silver Age because he would break out of jail, find a giant robot somewhere that he had stashed away, and try to rob banks. And well, if you've got all these giant robots, you've probably got a lot of money, so what's the motivation to rob banks? So when John Byrne came along and kind of reinvented Lex, it, it, this is the Lex that everybody kind of knows and sees and relates to. And a lot of that has to do, too, I think, with Gene Hackman's portrayal of him in the initial Superman film from 1978, where he he still had that, you know, evil, brilliant criminal mind, but he was more motivated by than just showing up Superman a little bit. He wanted to prove not only that he was better than Superman, but that he could beat him, and did so with a pretty thickly layered plot that had a lot of little nuances to it. They kept a little bit of comic relief there in the form of uh, Otis, who was Ned Beatty, but that's kind of the first step towards the modern interpretation of Lex. And Lex is such a bad guy that there's just no redeeming quality to him anymore through, through just seemingly any petty trick he can get at Superman with, he's taken. Yeah, it is interesting to see how he changed over the years. And Gene Hackman did such a phenomenal job portraying Luther in, the, in any of the films he was involved in. I mean, even the disastrous Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. You know, Hackman may have been there just for a paycheck, but he still managed to convey more or less the essence of Lex Luthor within that. And that he deserves all the credit in the world for that. And it's not been easy. You know, it, it wasn't easy finding someone to replace him. I actually thought Kevin Spacey did a pretty decent job in Superman Returns. I think the issue was more with how they wrote the character as opposed to how he chose to portray him. He seemed a bit more manic in that, in that he would go from very calmly and almost in a monotone, be introspective and calculating to all of a sudden yelling. You know, the, the famous scene, it's on YouTube, you know, uh, Sean Comer does the Dr. Cox wrong song. If I were to do one, I would do Lex Luthor yelling wrong at Lois Lane from Superman Returns. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Uh, and again, I don't think that's, I, I, would, I would say that, it seemed seemed rushed throughout where he would never have a transitional period in his mood. It would just zero to 60, completely calm to, you know, the the infamous wrong. Yeah. And that that, that is kind of sad because, it, you know, if you just took a couple of minutes even to establish things getting ratcheted up as far as his mood, you know, he's not, I said, Matt, he's not bipolar. He's, and it was sad because, you know, you've seen Kevin Spacey portray those cold, calculating bad guys before. Uh, John Doe from Seven and, at the end of it, the uh, usual suspect when he was, it turns out he's Kaiser Soze. I mean, he's done that role and he's done it so well that it just, it's an absolute shame that they wrote that, that they wrote his role as being so erratic and manic. And to me, it showed that the writers didn't really completely understand Lex because, you know, at that time, they had already done the storyline in comic books where Lex had basically engineered a presidential election in his favor and became the president of the United States, which is probably, to this point, his, his single greatest villainous stroke. It's up for debate, but I would, I would pick that by far of anything he's done. But at the same time, even in the storyline where he's finally, you know, exposed to the world is having gone through all these evil machinations and everything he engineered happened during his time as president, he never really freaks out until the very end. It's, it's a slow burn. It's not, you know, the zero to 60 we talk about in the film. It's, you know, no, don't worry, I've got a contingency plan for this, I've got one for this, I've got one for this. And then finally when he's really realizing he's at the end of his rope is when he finally just gets desperate, which is completely human. 
It is, and that's that's kind of an odd point about Lex in that he is kind of the consummate human. And a lot of his issues with Superman, I mean, yes, he was shown up by Superman. We've talked about his ego being in that. But when you listen to him, I'm going to reference something, and I apologize for not remembering the one-shot um, comic off the top of my head, but the uh, Superman All-Star uh, animated movie where it, it's based on a one-shot out-of-continuity comic where Lex tricks Superman, he overexposes him to solar radiation, and that is slowly killing him, and that's the story progresses as Superman is dying. But within that, uh, super, uh, not super, uh, Lex Luthor gives an interview to Clark Kent, and whenever you hear Luthor kind of justify his position against Superman, it's, it's I mean, you, you know, because he's egomaniacal and more, and, you know, I mean, technically crazy and whatnot. There's always a degree of BS there, but at the same time, it's hard not to see where he's coming from in some respects, because in that one in particular, he asks, and of course it's mildly amusing that he's talking to Clark Kent when dissing Superman and praising the human qualities of Kent, but he says, doesn't the very existence of Superman diminish you? And he's not just speaking specifically to Kent, he's speaking about humanity. It doesn't, here, uh, you know, here is Lex Luthor, and he's working out, and he's, uh, and in this particular portrayal of him, he's worked very hard to become kind of the as as much as in peak physical condition as you can be. And he says, you know, look at look at my body. This is the result of years of hard work, of sweat, of proper dieting, of dedication. I didn't get this because it's some alien physiology that allows me to become super powered when exposed to yellow sunlight. I, you know, I'm not, doesn't the existence of Superman just in and of itself, because there is something that powerful out there, basically doesn't that make human beings irrelevant? And it's difficult not to, not to you know, look back and say, you know, maybe he's kind of got a point there. And maybe, and you know, that's a perfectly rational, not rational, but that is a response that people would have. I mean, we live in a society today, and I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a psychologist, so bear with me here, people. But we live in a society where it's never good enough, more or less. You never, you're never thin enough. You're never rich enough. You never have the right cars. You never have the right body. You never have the right house. You know, it, it's never enough. And you know, we live in the cons- consumerism. And if you dropped, if you dropped in Superman, you know, I can't help but think there are people out there who might just look at that and say, and I mean, Lex is obviously motivated by this and by the challenge of it by and large, but they have, there are people out there who would go to the other end too and would be like, I can never do that. There is no way I could ever live up to what Superman can accomplish. So what's the point of going on? I, I want to piggyback on that too, Robert, if you don't mind, because during, yeah, the, the, Black, during the Black Lantern storyline where you had the war of the lanterns going on in DC comics, where uh, basically what happened was they were lantern zombies, for lack of a better term. Rising from the yeah, dead, yeah, the black, wielding black, uh, black storyline, right? Yeah. Uh, basically, what happened was at one point Lex was given an orange ring because the orange ring is powered by greed and avarice, so it makes complete sense. And at one point, Wonder Woman's lasso is put around Lex. And for those of you who are unaware of Wonder Woman or her history, she has a golden lasso, which, when you're bound by it, compels you to do whatever she says and tell the truth. And Lex admits that his deepest desire while under that influence is to be Superman, which makes a lot of sense if you look at his history, because 
before Superman, like we talked about, he was he was the it guy in Metropolis, the big city in the DC universe, uh, which is actually, ironically enough, located in Delaware, if you follow their canonicity. But that's another story. But, hey, yeah, hey, come uh, on. The Briscoe you know, brothers could be... The Briscoe brothers could totally be from Metropolis. <laughs> that's, that's true. But, but Fans yeah, of independent he, professional he, wrestling will get that. Everyone else, I apologize. I just couldn't resist. He, he, I, I think Jay and Mark appreciate it. But he, he's, he's, he's it before Superman. Before they know that there's a Superman, he's the pinnacle of what everybody wants. He's in peak physical shape. He's got any money you could think of. He's got... You know, people who adore him and stand outside LexCorp Tower just waiting for him to make an appearance. Superman comes, and he sees that there's something beyond what he knew was the limit, and he becomes obsessed with it, mainly out of jealousy and because that's where he wants to be, and that's what he wants. And in All-Star Superman, that even goes to the point of him genetically engineering the abilities of Superman to put in himself initially. And the only thing I didn't really like about that All-Star Superman movie is that Lex becomes the hero in it to an extent because when, you know, spoiler alert for everybody, if you don't, if you haven't seen the movie, don't listen to the next minute and a half, two minutes of this podcast. Lex basically realizes how wrong he's been the whole time and that the world needs a Superman and genetically engineers the code perfectly so that they can create another Superman since theirs has passed away. And it just seems wrong to me because Lex Luthor's the bad guy. He eval. When you redeem him, what do you got left? You have to come up with, you know, it's all secondary because he's the guy we love to hate. When you take that away, Lex Luthor doesn't matter anymore. And I don't want to read Superman comics or be in a Superman milieu that doesn't involve Lex as the primary antagonist. Well, I, I think part of that, and this is a really interesting point as far as Superman All-Star goes, I think a bit of that goes back to after he's ingested the superhero serum and becomes Superman for 24 hours and Superman still finds a way to beat him and he, after those powers leave him and Superman has destroyed his remaining serum, he gets quite angry with Superman and says, why did you do that? I could have saved the world. Which, and to further go into that a little bit, uh, the Solaris, which is this like supercomputer that replicates sun, has poisoned Earth's sun. It's now emitting blue light. It's, uh, I believe the Blue Dwarf is the term for the star that it would have turned into, and that would have just thrown the entire solar system out of whack from a physics perspective. And Superman just looks at him and says, you know, if it really mattered to you, you could have saved the world years ago. And it just, I think that particular point, especially in a character like Lex, who to some degree has to believe in his own BS so much, it kind of made a point. And I think the other part of that is, you know, Lex had left, what, his niece or something to be the next evil genius, and, you know, you need the opposing force. And I think, you know, especially, that also I think would have fed into his ego, because here's the next Superman, and you have it because of Lex Luthor. I mean, you know, that, you could, that could theoretically be like the greatest trick of all, to, so that he's remembered fondly instead of as the bad guy that he truly is. I, I, I can see that point, too. It's just that, you know, it, the, I think... I agree with you, though. I, I do agree with you. But at the same time, you know, it kind of reminds me in a way of... I forget the name of the storyline. It happened in the comics, but the Joker gets a hold of this. I think it's a reality-warping device. Oh, Emperor and, Joker. That's the storyline. Yes, and he just spends forever. Every day he finds a new way to torture and kill Batman. But every day he brings him back, and Superman actually is the one who saves Batman. But he points out that... You know, Joker can't do anything, but he has nothing beyond Batman. 
So if he ever actually succeeds, his whole existence kind of becomes moot, and I think Lex may have had a bit of that same type of realization there, but that's a bit too much extrapolation, I think. So moving on a yeah, little I, bit I, from that. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, make your I point. Remember, okay. I remember Emperor Joker pretty well. That that That's a great point, though, and it, it does make a lot of sense in that, you know, it, it starts off where, you know, a guy like Superman comes in just to do good, but then... He, he's he's such a magnetic figure in terms of the people around him and the people who observe him that these, these egotists kind of don't have anything else to define themselves by but him. And it, it, it almost speaks more about him and what, like, a paragon he is compared to them. And he, make, and he kind of exacerbates their own insecurities to such an extent that it drives them mad. And, you know, when you have someone like the Joker in that particular instance who's not all there to begin with... But Lex Luthor has inadvertently, since we're, we do want to stick with Lex here for a little bit, he's also spawned a bunch of bad guys for Superman. Lex doesn't just oppose Superman on his own necessarily, he does, but he has also created more than a few robots, clones, etc., 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 that have opposed Superman and gone on to be pretty decent villains in their own right. So where do you want to start with that, Pat? Talk... Pick one, your favorite one, let's go with, and talk to me about something created by Lex that existed beyond that particular confrontation. Uh, of, of the creations Lex has had a hand in that have become regular pains in the butt for Superman, I think my favorite is probably Bizarro. And I think most people know Bizarro to some extent. Uh, he, he's become a pop culture idiom whenever there's something odd or you know, something very different than what you're used to. You often refer to it as a bizarro version of such and such. And I think that, that speaks to the popularity of not only Superman, but his secondary characters and Bizarro being one of them. And there's a couple of different origins for Bizarro throughout the years, but I think the one most people are familiar with is that there's the Bizarro world where all of a sudden this, this you know, and, and several different takes of it. But basically Lex has had a hand in each of them where... Through trying to create a clone of Superman, he creates what's deemed an imperfect genetic clone that has physical instabilities, and while it does have the powers to a lesser extent of Superman, it doesn't possess his intelligence, his character, and it also possesses a deformed look of chalky white skin and kind of crystallized features. And it's almost wrong to call Bizarro a villain because he's just so easily manipulated constantly by evil forces that he gets forced into the role. But people love Bizarro because he, he is the, you know, the visual opposite of Superman, and they have a lot of fun with the character when he shows up. Yeah, he's uh, the various clones of Superman. Uh, Bizarro, you know, one of the ways that he came about was, like you said, there, there are quite a few different origin stories, but he was hit with a duplicating ray from, or, or uh, Lex hit Superman with a duplicating ray, and that spawned Bizarro, and he's, you know, he's almost like you know, the poor guy that you can't help but kind of feel bad for because he's not all the way there mentally. I mean, he's, you can just have fun with him. Like you said, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting paradox to just kind of be a mirror, you know, just uh, not a polar opposite but a mirror image where things are backwards of what they should be. Like, for example, Bizarro has uh, freeze vision and flame breath as opposed to Superman's freeze breath and heat vision. I mean, it's just the opposite of Superman 
in pretty much every way, including, it seems, some of the mental capacities, because he's not quite the brightest bulb that ever came out of the factory. No, that would be an understatement, if, any, if ever there was one. But I, I think, you know, we talk about Lex and what a serious villain Lex is all the time. There comes a point in anything where if you're just constantly serious for the sake of serious, you get burned out. And I think part of what the Bizarro stories can bring is a little bit of, yes, there is a serious conflict at some point because Bizarro, you know, let's face it, imagine an autistic child with, you know, close to the powers of Superman. That's a scary thought because they can do a lot of damage just because they're not in control of what they're doing, even if they think they are. So there's that serious element to it. But all of this stuff with Bizarro is, is, is fun and lighthearted, uh, you know, such as when they've actually visited the Bizarro world that Bizarro created through this duplicate ray. And he's got, you know, a very vicious pet alien similar to a dog that he calls Crypto, just like Superman has his dog. And, you know, a, a Bizarro, Bizarro Lois Lane. Yeah, who cannot stand him, of course, which, you know, is the complete opposite of Superman and Lois. But it, it's fun, it's interesting, it's, it's something different that I think a lot of characters couldn't pull off in terms of having a rogue like that. But with Superman, it makes sense, just because... He is who he is, and the vast power he commands that something that far out is not something that seems too foreign a concept for a character like him, as opposed to a character like Batman, where things are much more grounded in, in a gritty realism, so to speak, with some exceptions along the way. But I, well, Bizarro, already Bizarro seen Bizarro brings Bizarro Batman. Anyone who saw the campy 1970s television show with Adam West has seen Bizarro Batman. Yeah, I was going to steer away from that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, just had to throw it out there. Yeah, but but, but even even so, I mean, Bizarro is a villain. Make, make no mistake, he's been aligned with the Secret Society of Supervillains, the Legion of Doom. Any iteration group of bad guys has usually gotten Bizarro to join them. And even though he wants Superman, his rationale is not to just be the best Bizarro he can be. He has to kill Superman to be Superman so he can replace him fully. And that's really where you have to draw the line at a point. And even when Superman deals with him, he tries to help him repeatedly to the point where finally it seems like he's making progress with Bizarro, and then Bizarro will just turn on him and try to kill him. And Superman, you can hear the sigh in him right before he punches Bizarro in the face and knocks him from Metropolis to back to the Bizarro world. Uh, you know, he, he he's like the slower, you know, cousin or something that you try to help, you try to help, but every now and then you just have to put him in their place, I guess. Yeah, and I've always, I've always, I can, I can never help but just feel that it, when Bizarro was created, I, and I forget who it was exactly who who was the writer behind that, but I can't help but feel they that they read Mice and Men maybe just a week before they had the idea. That yeah, that would yeah, I get where you're coming from with that. Um, Alvin Schwartz is what this says that created. Or wrote and created by, hang on, Otto Bender, George Papp, uh, Alvin Schwartz was in charge of the strip at the time, so if that helps you with who created him. Yeah, he, 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 it's funny though because he is the, the opposite of Superman, but he tends to bring out the best qualities in Superman, which I think is part of what makes the stories interesting too, in that rather than just punch him and be done with Superman tries to see the good in everybody, the redeeming qualities, and tries to bring them out and tries to help first before, you know, just opening up a can of whoop-ass on him, which is inevitably going to happen. He really does try to be the do-gooder and help him in some way, however he can. It just never works out, but he never stops trying. And I think, I think a good villain will always highlight the positives of the hero and the things that make you root for him. And I think in his own way, Zaro kind of does that. 
Yeah, I agree. That's you know, you're right about a villain, a good villain at least, making you appreciate what goes on within the hero a lot more than you would with you know a lesser villain, so to speak. I mean, everybody has filler bad guys, but a good one. It's not just about them; it's about what they bring out of the hero, and that that goes through all genres. Any of these conversations I've ever had about them, and all the ones that I plan to have, the bad guy makes you appreciate the good guy so much more than you would without his existence. So, with uh, so Lex Luthor, the consummate bad guy, the genius intellect, the constant thorn in the side of Superman. I want to segue from him into kind of the polar opposite as far as the villainy spectrum goes, because Lex Luthor never, he's always thinking he can't possibly oppose Superman with force. He has to use his brain, his wits, all of his cunning, all of the things that create an interesting dynamic. On the other side of the spectrum is the creature that doesn't think, the creature that is nothing but raw brute force and succeeded in killing Superman. I want to talk about Doomsday next, and you know, he killed Superman. Come on, what else can you say about the about that particular thing? So, talk to me about Doomsday a little bit. Or there's another name he was initially known by before he was christened Doomsday. I forget what it is off the top of my head. Talk to me about the thing that actually unseated Superman and killed him. Doomsday, who shares a, a partial Kryptonian origin with Superman, uh, basically was genetically engineered to cut, become the ultimate adaptable Darwinist survival creature. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of interesting in that Doomsday, you know, was put into the, as a, as a as basically a baby was put into all these situations that were deemed unsurvivable, and yet constantly came away from it. Where happened is that he can't be killed twice the same way because of the survival abilities he's manifested through genetic engineering by you know Kryptonian scientists, and just became more powerful and more powerful and more more survivalist and more survivalistic. And he, he just he went from being a, a more of a a living being to a force of nature in, in many ways. And when he finally comes to Earth and is just rampaging through on a mindless just trek through anywhere he damn well pleases, and the only thing that can stand in his way is Superman, you have your doubts at this time because first of all they're calling they're calling the storyline the death of Superman. So. In the back of your mind, they're not really going to kill Superman, but they're calling it Death Superman. Can they really do that? And Doomsday's power levels were shown to be just enormous and definitely, you know, capable of matching Superman when he's able to rip through the entire Justice League without blinking. He, you with know, one arm, Super quite literally Dirt. tied behind his back. Yeah, and he, he's still in the If you, if you follow the comics, he had been launched into space by another from another planet that had bound him with this. I forget what the material was, but what? But this stuff was almost was unbreakable, pretty much. And for we don't know how long it took him, but he finally got one arm free, and that's when he starts rampaging. And the Justice League shows up, and he beats them with his other arm still locked into this uh, kind of like I have a visual, kind of like a straitjacket type. It's all in metal, of course, but he only has the use of one arm, and he beats the entire Justice League. And then Superman throws everything he has at him, and he just freeze the other arm and at that point oh you know it, it hit the fan oh yeah. and and you know they 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 this is kind of what everybody has always wanted to be superman really let go full force because he has to against uh, somebody who's capable of matching him because he even against you know very similar physical force like mongol or dark side he's never 
he's never really gone that extent, and it's always kind of wound up being a battle more on a different playing field than just a straight-up fist-cuffs fight. But that's what we get with Doomsday because that's all Doomsday knows. And they tear each other quite literally apart and beat each other to death. And in a way, Doomsday's debut is also kind of his downfall because when you come in and the first thing you do is kill Superman, there's kind of nowhere for you to go but down. And I think it's a similarity he shares with Bane, who debuted around this same time frame a little bit earlier. At Bane's initial appearance, he engineers everything to make Batman crazy and wear himself out and then breaks his back and cripples him. A little bit afterwards. They debuted Bane a little bit before this, but he doesn't attack Batman until after because it's hinted at in in the Nightfall arc that part of what's helping wear down Batman is that Superman is now gone, and that's and that plays into his mental state when Bane's able to attack him. Yeah, and this this was a period of time where where DC was trying to experiment with if their characters had gotten too old and if they needed to be changed up in some way or maybe replaced in others. And these guys were basically two plot devices to kind of further that. And with the killing of with the killing of Superman by Doomsday. They they thought about ushering in a new era of Superman and tried to test out a couple of new characters to see what the reaction was. And and they say they had always planned to bring Superman back. He was never going to stay dead. I have my doubts about it just because of constant changes they made in books throughout that time period. And, you know, the same thing with Bruce Wayne where I think they had the thought of keeping that man on the back burner after Bane broke him because they were going through a grim and gritty phase where characters like Spawn and the Punisher and Wolverine, who are anti-heroes, who killed without remorse, were, you know, becoming the rage. And so Doomsday really was kind of almost uh, a plot device even then to try to see what they could do differently with their most tried and true character. But, you know, I think they were short-sighted with it because Doomsday has been used since then and in some creative ways and ways that you can appreciate. But it took them 10 years to do it because... They put him on such a high stage to begin with that he had nowhere to go but down. Yeah, I mean, the, I I can't help but feel like people don't, you know, he maybe got overused a little bit, his specialness kind of wore off, because the only way they could defeat him was the uh, time traveler Wave Rider took Doomsday to the end of time, where he is locked in eternal entropy, because he can't, you can't overcome entropy. They never found a way to actually beat him. They took him to the end of time and said, here, you can never escape from this. Now we'll try and figure out if we can ever actually defeat you. I mean, when you think about it, that's that's scary, man. That is not something you screw around with. The, the only way you can be beaten is by the universe itself to stop. That's a scary thought. And it, it, you know, Doomsday is such a powerful force that Superman has used him even in, in certain instances where they're fighting of an uphill battle. During a, during a storyline called the Imperiex War, where a time-traveling, uh, uh, I guess you call him a megalomaniac to some extent, but a character named Imperiex, who is vastly powerful and has knowledge of the future at his disposal, it wages war on Earth and its superheroes. At one point, you know, Superman and Darkseid even align themselves, and they realize that one of the things they have to do is use Doomsday against this guy. So they come to the agreement to use Doomsday, and... Darkseid, of course, sees this as an opportunity to unlock the genetic code of Doomsday to eventually kill Superman. He sees as his only means of stopping him from dominating the Earth and turning it into a new apocalypse. And 
anytime Doomsday shows up now, you know it's an event. At, like I said, uh, it took about 10 years for them to figure out anything to do with Doomsday following Superman's death storyline with him. But what they did, unfortunately, was use Doomsday over and over and over and over again, and to the point where it wasn't special anymore. Doomsday, I've always likened to, in, say, professional wrestling, and Abdullah the Butcher. And Abdullah the Butcher would come into a territory, stay for six weeks or seven weeks to torture, you know, whoever the babyface was at the time until the babyface could figure out a way to drive him away or beat him or one-up him. And Abdullah would go back into the shadows and go to some other territory for a while and keep himself fresh so that the audience who was seeing him didn't see him again for a while until it was time and it was an event when he showed up. Doomsday is that kind of villain where you can't have him showing up on a regular basis because it diminishes his not only his, his surprise level of appearance but his impact as a character. And I, I think that they still haven't really found enough of a happy medium with that. Uh, that that's fair. Um, you know, one of the – if I could kind of draw on your Abdullah the Butcher comparison, um, I saw one of the uh, – again, I, I, if we're going to dip into the professional wrestling world of comparisons here, um, I was watching one of the uh, – WWE On Demand has these um, Legends of Wrestling roundtables that they do that are actually very – very well done. I enjoy. I've enjoyed all of them that I've seen, more or less. And there's one where they're talking about giants and big men in the world of wrestling. And I think it's Jim Ross who says that you know the big show should be so much more impactful and more involved. You know, he sh- seeing the big show should be a big deal, but because you see him on television every week, it doesn't have the same impact that it did when you'd say when you'd see you know Andre the Giant or Abdullah the Butcher because they only showed up every now and then. And you're seeing you know, a guy who's over seven feet tall, near 500 pounds, on television every week, and it diminishes some of the specialness, some of the event that should come along with something that amazing. Without a doubt, that's the that's the you know, and that's the problem that they faced with Doomsday. Where I think it was 2003, 2004, they started to use him pretty regularly in a couple of books, not just action comics, but Superman, Batman, and a, a couple of other different ones. And I know that there were storylines running concurrent through those books. But at the same time, the, the constant showing up of Doomsday, and, and not even always battling Superman, but at times battling, you know, Superboy and Supergirl kind of took away from what Doomsday is. And Doomsday is basically the ultimate predator and, and the ultimate destructive force. And when he shows up, Superman should be really the only guy capable of dealing with him one-on-one, the way they, sh- the way they have him debut. And it's unfortunate that they haven't been able to capitalize on the success since and come up with a way to really reinvigorate that character. One of the only positive things I think that can come out of this new 52 that DC is doing where they've kind of reinvented all of their characters for the modern age, uh, throwing out continuity from the past for the most part, is that maybe this will give them a chance to get Doomsday right again, for, for lack of a better way to say it. Because they haven't shown a Doomsday yet in this continuity Maybe they can debut him, and maybe they can get it right the way they did initially. Well, they've only hinted at him in the uh, the new 52 that they've been doing, and uh, I be- they've hinted at, and it's been speculated that he uh, a Superman from a different universe called Super Doom, uh, which they revealed a little not too long ago, and it's been speculated that he that's actually Doomsday, but he hasn't been re he has not been reintroduced yet. Although I think one of the scariest moments as far as being a Superman fan goes was when the next villain I want to talk about, Brainiac, 
kind of took over the body of Doomsday. And it didn't last because Doomsday's blind. He's not a sentient being. He just exists to destroy. His will and his rage and his urge to crush everything overcame the will of even Brainiac and forced him out of his body, which not an easy thing to do. And I want to talk about Brainiac for a little bit now because that's another force that has constantly and successfully in some cases opposed Superman. So give us, again, there are many different origin stories that go along with Brainiac. Kind of give us a brief rundown of those and how he's opposed Superman, what makes him such a different villain. You know, let's go along with, let's just, let's just talk Brainiac. Let's talk the 12th level intellect. The, the 12th level intellect is, is probably his most endearing feature to, to the long-time fans, but Brainiac's another one kind of almost like Lex, where he was very much depicted solidly one way, and once the reinvention of Superman in the mid-'80s came around, he was given a character overhaul and really made to be much more of a force than what he had been previously. Uh, Brainiac has mainly had two appearances that people are familiar with. One of them is as a humanoid form with green skin. The other, uh, basically a robotic kind of cybernetic form. And it looks kind of like the Terminator. Yes, when the fake skin is peeled away, he, he very much looks like the T-800. But uh, really, with Brainiac, the true and tried and true origin that they've stuck with recently is that Brainiac was originally uh, someone known as the Collector of Worlds, where he was this massive genius who had developed this technology to kind of shrink down major cities on planets, keep one, and destroy the rest of the planet so that he could accumulate the all the knowledge of the universe to make himself what he deemed a complete being. Uh, one of these planets that he actually did play a little bit of a role in the destruction of was Krypton. And his intent was to shrink a city there, its capital, called Kandor, which, of course, now in Superman legend is the bottle city of Kandor, which I, I think most Superman fans know, and if not, you're not a Superman fan. But Brainiac eventually found out that one of these people from Krypton had survived, and that, that person was Superman. And so he kind of be- developed an obsession with Kal-El of Krypton, even initially posing as a friend to him, saying he had knowledge of Krypton and he wanted to share it because he's also of Kryptonian origin, which turned out to be a lie and a manipulation. And since then, Brainiac has always come up with some sort of scheme to either, in almost a human sense, kind of develop a personal rivalry with Superman, and also just to be a prick and try to destroy the Earth. Well, you know, you can't. Everyone has to have priorities. I mean, you have to destroy the Earth. He has to. You have, if you're Brainiac, you know, you're without Kal-el either being dead or in your collection, him and his ship. Your collection's not complete. And if you're a collector, you know, that kind of drives you nuts. I mean, I've never been a serious collector of anything. I have dabbled, but if there's, if you get to a point where you think, you know, oh, I'm more or less done, or I've collected all of this subset of something, and then you find out you're missing something. That can bother you, and, you know, if you take that nagging obsession that a human would feel and then you amplify it to include a megalomaniacal personality and all the other evil traits that someone like Brainiac possesses, it kind of makes sense. And then you have to shrink Metropolis and destroy the Earth because, uh, I mean, that, that's just how things go. That's what you do. And he's come a long way in that regard since at one point in time he was kind of just almost a laughable character where – no one was really sure of his origin, where they thought maybe at one time he was a, a carnival performer named Milton Fine, who had developed a little bit of extrasensory intelligence and thought himself to be an alien and really kind of had a convoluted backstory for years and, and kind of debuted even without explaining a backstory. He was just a green-skinned guy in 
a pair of Speedos and a purple long sleeve shirt just bothering Superman with random devices. And when, when they tried to remake Superman in a more serious image in the 80s, Brainiac was one of the characters who they looked at and said, you know what, there's a lot of potential here that we haven't tapped into yet, and we can turn this into kind of, if Lex is the A-villain, Brainiac is not far behind him. And it's no surprise since then they've often allied themselves to try to each further their own means and double-cross the other while both getting a Superman. Yeah, that's a... Uh... That's an interesting relationship between those two. Um, Brainiac has been portrayed a few different ways. Uh, you, know, you mentioned that he's you know, the green-skinned alien or the uh, Terminator, basically. He's also been portrayed at times as a, a self-aware artificial intelligence uh, supercomputer with various other and all of the uh, cybernetic organisms that he creates that they're just um, avatars, for want of a better phrase, and his true intelligence lies in this computer hard drive somewhere. And it's sad that he's so convoluted in some ways because he is such a it, – it's such an interesting concept. I mean, and you've, they've gone so many different ways with it. I mean, I think they had a storyline where he could actually kind of do what the Borg do if you're a Star Trek fan. He could assimilate things, turn them into uh, robots to serve his purpose. I mean, I might be misremembering that, but – there's just so many different ways that you that you can take him, and you can. I mean, he's such a fun villain at times too. Because I mean, if you get past you know kind of the goofy elements that they had in the beginning, someone that I mean, you know, I mentioned the twelfth level intellect, and I forget the exact comparison, but I just to kind of reference how smart he is. I think they said like every human on the planet combined has like a sixth level intellect in the twentieth century, and. He's basically he's twice as smart as all of humanity combined. I mean that that can be kind of scary. That's not that's nothing to play around with. No, and and the the funny thing about Brainiac is that really I think the last time he was used was probably the best development of the of the Brainiac character and its potential, and that was the Brainiac Attack storyline that ran through the majority of Superman's titles prior to the release of the new Fifty Two version of everything, where uh, Brainiac really amped up his aggression and tried to shrink down Metropolis and tried to destroy Smallville, Kansas, and really hit Superman where it hurts. And ultimately, Brainiac completed the most villainous thing he's done, where upon firing some missiles uh, at the Kent farm, Jonathan Kent, Superman's adoptive father, you know, the man who raised him, had gotten clear of it, but the stress of everything caused him to have a heart attack and die. And that's really, to be honest, I don't know that I've seen a more villainous act committed against Superman than that, the indirect murder of his father. And you have to question if it really was indirect, because with that 12th level intellect, Brainiac knows he's dealing with an older human male, as if the thought of a heart attack is impossible after having missiles fired at him. Yeah, he's, you know, when, you, when you're able to successfully, I mean, for as much as Lex Luthor is the antithesis of Superman, I don't think Lex has ever had that type of successful moment against Superman like Brainiac had when he caused the death of Jonathan Kent. I mean, I think that's that's roughly comparable, I feel, to the Joker killing Jason Todd. You know, it's something that you look at as a villain and you can say that you succeeded. You know, and so, you know, in the realm of villains, you know, the whole gimmick with them is that they fail, that they get stopped. So when something actually succeeds and something actually works, it leaves this huge impression on everyone involved. I mean, when we talked about uh, James Bond villains, I actually, afterwards, I kind of looked at, I looked at them, and the only one who ever succeeds in his plot is Raul Silva, because M dies, and that was his goal, was to kill M. 
And yes, he dies before she does, but his plot succeeded. No one else in the history of James Bond ever succeeded against him, except for that one. Joker's the only one who's ever... I mean, yes, there is Bane as well, but by and large, Joker paralyzed Barbara Gordon, killed Jason Todd, Brainiac caused the death of Jonathan Kent. I mean, to have that degree of success against a hero is kind of the measure of how great you are as a villain, because there, it, you almost get used to them failing. You get used to good triumphing over evil, which, again, for the purposes of narrative is how it should be, but when they succeed, you know, you don't forget it. That's something that sticks with you. Yeah, and, and as much as as much as we talked about how kind of Lex went the opposite route of Superman in terms of his his humanity, where he he's uh, his most identifiable qualities are greed and self gain and uh, narcissism and insecurity. Brainiac is this this you know this computer, this living artificial intelligence. But because of the relationship with Superman, Brainiac developed some very human qualities, such as petty revenge and, and obsession with destroying Superman because. As long as Superman lives, Brainiac's, what he's deemed amongst his greatest achievements, the destruction of Krypton and taking it in as a specimen, it hasn't succeeded because Superman is still alive. And not only is he alive, but he can also potentially, you know, foster an heir, for lack of a better word, and keep the Kryptonian bloodline going, even though it'll be diminished through further generations if it's not, you know, purely Kryptonian. But nonetheless, it can still go on and on and on. And that's something that's going to you know, cause an artificial intelligence to break down on itself. You know, I don't understand. I did this. How is this still possible? When an artificial intelligence with a 12th-level intellect who doesn't have an answer for a question, they want to destroy themselves, but at least this one realizes, why Why should I destroy myself? I can, re- I can rectify this by destroying this singular anomaly of the problem. And that's always going to, it seems to be, Brainiac's motivation to some extent. They haven't really been clear with him where they're going in the New 52 yet, although... He's kind of reverted back to this collector of worlds persona and has been contacted by Lex Luthor. So we'll, we'll see where it goes if they keep that part of it alive. But to this point, that's been the main issue is that Superman is the evidence of Brainiac's imperfection as the collector of worlds. And it's something he can't cope with as an artificial intelligence. Well, and, you know, the reaction, you know, there's there's kind of a long running joke that to defeat an artificial intelligence you pose a conundrum to it you know, a, a question that has no answer type thing and the logic loop causes short circuits and they self destruct and they burn up and Brainiac's reaction to his own imperfection was not that of a supercomputer trapped in a logic loop he reacted in ironically a very human way he lashed out at what is causing his imperfection yeah through through a conflict with and you know I I. Superman is a human. I, I, you know, he's more, he's more Clark Kent than he is Cal El. So through through this interaction with a human, Brainiac has taken on very human traits, and I think that that even kind of speaks to the volume that Superman affects people, and and in this case, not a person, but to something intelligent life and an intelligent life form around him, and that he he's such a force that they alter themselves to be able to get with him, even when it's against their nature. Yeah, I agree. He's, you know, you adapt to Superman. Superman does not adapt to you type of thing. Um, we talked, we mentioned him a couple of times. I feel we'd be remiss not to discuss Darkseid a little bit here because he's another villain that has opposed uh, the Justice League and Superman in particular at times fairly successfully off and on. I mean, give us a little bit of the backstory of Darkseid and how 
he factors in here because he's a he's been compared. I mean, he's kind of the DC equivalent of Thanos from the Marvel universe, who we should be seeing in an upcoming Avengers movie. And he, he's a big bad. He's not he's not a minor player. He his name's on the marquee as far as villains go across the DC universe. So let's talk about Darkseid a little. Bit. Yeah, Darkseid is the despotic ruler of a planet known as Apocalypse, which is just built upon suffering and pain and all things wicked. Uh, basically, Darkseid is, is obsessed with uh, something called the anti-life equation, which will unlock to him the secrets of the universe and allow for complete destruction of it at his hands, which is what he wants. And part of what he wants to do along the way is just conquer certain worlds wherever he can. And he sees the Earth as a place where he can cultivate a new apocalypse and really break into this universe and start a campaign of terror across it because the closest planet to him, which is New Genesis, he can't attack through an alliance he had formed a long time ago with the ruler of that planet, the High Father, where they even exchanged biological sons as a truce. So Darkseid's biological son, Orion, was raised there, and they raised High Father's biological son, Calabac, on Apocalypse. So, well, and Orion's the only one who's ever killed Darkseid, I mean. He, Orion grew up with the values of New Genesis as opposed to Apocalypse. Yeah, he, he was raised that way. And Calabac, of course, became, uh, you know, obsessed with destruction, suffering, and wickedness as much as Darkseid, his foster father, did. And so, you know, Darkseid sees Superman and sees somebody who initially he feels if he can convert to his side, that he'll be unstoppable. And he again, like, finds out, like so many others, that Superman ain't for sale. He becomes obsessed with defeating him because he sees Superman as the only thing stopping him from his conquest of the Earth. And in many ways, he's right. Because we talked about how rare we could see Superman unleash the full force of his power. He doesn't have a choice but to do it with some villains like Doomsday, and Darkseid is another one of those villains where he can stand toe-to-toe with Superman and take it, and he can stand a good chance of beating him by unleashing the Omega Beams from his eyes, which have two effects. One, they can either disintegrate the target, or two, they can send them hurtling through various stages of time and having to relive painful events through their life over and over, which is what happened to Batman. And basically, uh, the Omega Beams never miss unless you have an exceptional, an, an exceptional defective artist that Superman has proven to be against them and oh, choosing them to hit various other targets by utilizing his super speed or getting something to cover his tracks so they can hit him. But Darkseid is, is a guy who, maybe not a 12th level select, but just as just as brilliant as you can think of anyone else besides Brainiac in terms of how he comes up with these plots to get at Superman. And he's always fallen short, but he, he's, there's a good chance he's going to be around for a long, long time because he's seemingly immortal. So he may indeed outlast Superman, and in older comics has, because he's opposed the Legion of Superheroes in the 30th century in one of my favorite storylines, the Great Darkness Saga. And, uh, you know, Darkseid is on a never-ending quest to find an anti-life equation and destroy the universe, much like his counterpart Thanos, who is obsessed with death and the physical manifestation of it. But he's, he's a guy who Superman is, to him, the only obstacle in his way and must be eliminated, just like Brainiac, only to the extent that he initially wanted to recruit him. And I think that's even further spurned him, because I can't understand why he wouldn't want to join me. He's insulted me. Now it's personal. Yeah, uh, Darkseid has been involved in some interesting storylines. I mean, you, you mentioned the Darkness Saga, 
He has created an army of imperfect doomsday clones to attack Earth. He attempted to brainwash uh, Supergirl, Kara Zor-El. I mean, he's had... He's not a bit player. You know? He's a big... He's a big bad. He's a guy who you take seriously. And I think that actually inadvertently, you know, just kind of by association, uh, you mentioned briefly Imperiex and what ha- and what uh, went on with him that hit that the existence of Imperiex got Darkseid, Steel, Superman, and Doomsday all on the same page. You know, speaks volumes about how dangerous he was to get that particular group of people together to fight against you. You know, that's that's pretty serious. And yeah, Darkseid is. You know, it's always a big deal when he and Superman square off, no matter how they do it, because, you know, like you said, those are two guys who on every level are more or less equals. I mean, Superman has always won so far, but, you know, Darkseid can and, like you said, has outlasted Superman because Darkseid doesn't seem to age, and Superman does. He's a really, Darkseid's a very interesting bad guy, especially in the Superman mythos. He used to bother Superman. You know, he supplied Intergang, the, you know, Organized crime unit in Metropolis for years with weapons, just just to annoy Superman. Yeah, anything you can do. You know, he's he's a lot, uh, you know we talked about Brainiac developing a quest for uh, a desire for petty revenge, and I think Darkseid has a slightly overdeveloped sense of that. In that, you know, anything that he can do to put Superman off, he's going to do it and relish a small victory wherever he can take it. He knows that you know fighting Superman is not a you know it's not a sprint; it's a you know, multi-year marathon type thing. So if he can annoy Superman, if he can disrupt a date that Superman has set up and annoy Lois maybe a little bit, he's happy with that, and he'll keep going. He'll take small victories wherever he can get them. And, and again, speaks volumes about how much Superman can affect somebody when you have a total nihilist in Darkseid, and his ultimate goal is the destruction of the universe, but he's willing to put that on hold just to knock Superman out of the way first. It, it, it's true. It's you know, that speaks about, you know, what a great hero Superman is because, you know, I mean, Darkseid could theoretically ignore Earth, ignore Superman. He could go wreck other worlds, and instead he is now fixated on Superman. Well, okay, we haven't talked about one that we need to talk about right now. Um, we're in the last 45 minutes, so if you've been listening, thank you for sticking with us. We're still going strong. We have yet to talk about... One of the big ones. In fact, he will be in the new movie, Man of Steel, as the primary villain. We need to talk about General Zod. So give us a brief rundown on Zod, Pat, and then we'll get into Terrence Stamp and his glorious, kind of glorious overacting as far as Zod goes in Superman 2. <laughs> general Zod is a Kryptonian. He actually was, he did hold the rank of general in the armies of Krypton, uh, and basically was one of the people who foresaw the destruction of Krypton coming. And when he tried to take matters against Kryptonian, Krypton's fascist government at the time, which didn't want to hear anything, he was punished and was going to be sentenced to death. Uh, Jor-El, who managed to try to plead his case and defend Zod, ironically enough, begged, them, begged the Kryptonian council instead to imprison him in the Phantom Zone, which is Krypton's kind of maximum security prison where you are banished away to this pocket dimension uh, with all the other horrible criminals of the time. And Jor-El begged, please don't kill him, just put him here, sense him. And I, ironically enough, the Phantom Zone isn't that terrible of a place because you could be there for 100 years and you won't age a day. But they gave Zod 40 years in the Phantom Zone along with certain other conspirators. Uh, Ursa, one of them, who is Zod's mate eventually in the Phantom Zone. 
uh, Non, who is a bit of a brain-damaged but powerful member of Zod's army, uh, and other people like Jack Sir and Mala, who were sent into the Phantom Zone. Uh, the Phantom Zone isn't exactly Club Med, even though you don't age, and as a result of Jor-El's pleading being the reason why he was sent there to put to death, he developed an immediate hatred of Jor-El and wanted just nothing more than to get his revenge on him and his entire bloodline. Well, lo and behold, Krypton blew up, and one of the few relics to remain was projector of the Phantom Zone that he could access inside and out. Now, in the original comics, Superboy had found this, this projector and saw that sentencing was up on Zod and released him to his other horror and eventually had to put him back in. Uh, there's been several iterations, including alternate universe versions of Zod that Superman broke about he would never kill by using kryptonite on him. There are other means as far as uh, Zod came back and was a real mainstream character in a storyline called, you know, World of New Krypton, Krypton and various other storylines that preceded it. And basically, they made him into much more the Terrence Stamp film version than any other time I've seen. And that character is firmly entrenched in what he believes is best Krypton and his people. He eventually gives up the grudge against the L family, or seemingly does, when he and Cal command the armies of Krypton together. But ultimately, Zod is a simple, simple man in that he has a motive for revenge, he intends to use it, and he wants to rule with an iron fist, despite the fact that's what he was fighting against in the first place, because so easily we turn into what we hate. Well, you know, you, you also have to kind of feel for the guy for being stuck in the Phantom Zone for as long as he was. I mean, you, you touched on it, you know, time has no meaning within that context. I mean, which follows the kind of the archetype that has been brought up, in especially Western culture, of hell not necessarily following the same timeline as Earth. I mean, in uh, the Constantine, both the movie, which was awkward, and the comic books, which are much better, you know, he... Hell, you're in hell for, I mean, seconds on Earth, and it feels like an eternity because time passes at a different rate there than here. Uh, Supernatural has touched on that. I mean, it goes. It, it's been there. It's been around for a while. And for someone you know, he was fighting a fascist government, it would be. You know, it's one of those things that we've seen time and time again. When the extremist comes to power, he almost immediately becomes the extreme he was fighting against. I mean. If we want a real-world example, um, in Russia, when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar, you know, what did we get not, you know, ten years later? We, you know, you don't have the uh, socialist dream that everyone had, when, that Lenin had when he overthrew the government. You instead get a totalitarian state that, event, that transitions into the playground of Stalin for all of his various horrors. And you know, I can see Zod kind of very similarly following, falling into that mold of, I finally managed to succeed, I'm clearly right, and now you all have to agree with me. That happens you know, over and over again throughout specifically human history, so it's something that it makes sense would happen other, in other places too. Coincidentally enough, Stalin being the translation from Man of Steel. <laughs> I didn't know that. Nice. Yeah, that's, Stalin is, not, is actually it's a name he took on, meaning Man of Steel. So, very very fitting for our conversation, but yeah, Zod is really just this guy who is born out of oppression to many extents because when he tries to do the right thing, and he he tried, he wanted to fight against a very dictatorship, a very uh, benign dictatorship in many ways, but a dictatorship that they had no power against and wouldn't listen to reason and 
everything was seemingly going to end with Krypton being destroyed, they didn't want to hear about it. And Zod said, you know what, enough is enough. We have to do something. This is the right thing, but ultimately, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And once he got a taste of it, it just took over him and transformed him completely into this, this would-be conqueror and just spurned on a hatred that is still, you know, ingrained into that character in every iteration it's been in. Now, he is, again, we, we mentioned General Zod will be the bad guy, uh, the primary bad guy in Man of Steel. They had considered other, they were also considering, I think, uh, they actually weren't really considering Lex Luthor for Man of Steel being the primary antagonist. They had considered Brainiac, uh, General Zod, and there's one other, I think, who they were seriously considering. Um, do, 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 do. I can't find it off the top of my head, but Michael Shannon will be portraying him in Man of Steel. Terrence Stamp, uh, great actor, played Superman, played General Zod in Superman 2 with the infamous Neil before Zod line. He's, uh, and he, in fact, the alliance within the way that uh, Zod interacts with uh, Lex Luthor in Superman 2 is one of the highlights of that movie, which says a lot because that's a great Superman film. But when Superman shows up repowered and Lex Luthor's response is, oh, thank God, Superman. After which everyone kind of looks at him and he then, oh, wait, I'm Lex Luthor. Oh, get him. I mean, I love that particular interaction that they had. I mean, it's just, he's such an interesting character that can be taken so many different directions. Yeah, yeah I mean, Terrence Stamp's portrayal really laid, laid the groundwork for everything they were going to do with that character afterward, because Zod really was not a primary Superman antagonist uh, up to that point. Uh, he, he was really more obscure and had made, I believe, like two appearances prior to that in the comic books. Uh, but, but, you know, Terrence Stamp's portrayal of Zod was just so phenomenal, and the writing of that film to really incorporate uh, a very obscure character into such a major player was brilliant. And everything since then, that's been the interpretation of Zod that people know and love and want to see. And it was the right thing to do for the character to make it into something more than it was. This isn't a case of where you take a, a, a good principal character, like, say, uh, Venom is to the Spider-Man universe and just really diminish it in the film for no apparent reason like they did in Spider-Man 3. This was a case of taking something that was less and making it more. And Zod, since then, has become really... I would say one of the three iconic Superman villains, along with Lex Luthor and along with Brainiac, I think that's your, your unholy trinity of Superman villains that are essential. And, and Zod, Zod, again, is a guy who Jeff Johns, one of my favorite writers, a lot of credit to him, he really made Zod relevant in the comics as a major player again. And Zod, you know, we talked about the most bonus acts that each guy has, has gone through against Superman. In Zod, Superman actually adopted Zod's biological son that Zod produced in the Phantom Zone with Ursa. And it was, the son was raised as Christopher Kent, uh, Superman and Lois' foster son. Basically, Zod's responsible for taking him away from Clark and Lois. So if you've ever read For the Man Who Has Everything, which is a story where Superman is put a, has a parasitic plant put on him called the Black Mercy that gives him his heart's desire, uh, Superman is dreaming that he lives on Krypton again and has a son and a wife and a family, and he gets very teary-eyed and has to say goodbye to his son when he figures out that this isn't real. He had to do it for real this time because of Zod, and that's something that I don't think you you ever let go of, regardless of how pious you are. And Superman's about as pious as anybody next to the Pope. So, More so Zod in some cases, I think. No Depending on which Pope. On I mean, we we can debate various Popes and their levels of piety as opposed to... 
from, other from levels John Paul of to D'Angelo De Niro. Yeah, I mean, let me just put it this way. There's a reason that Dante envisioned several popes burning in the seventh, cir- eighth circle, in one of the rondels of the eighth circle of hell. So. Yeah, and, and again, no argument for me on that. But but something like that, where you take away a man's son, and, and really, even though it wasn't his biological son, Clark and Lois raised, you know, Chris Kent into being who he was, and was still a child, really, and then eventually grew up and grew powers like Superman, even was fighting crime alongside him. So that's something Superman, he had to an extent in Kara Zor-El and Supergirl, a family connection. But it's different when it's your son that you raised and, you know, you love with such, in such a way that you can't compare to anything else. And for him to have to take it away the way he was, it, it's something that Superman was not over, and I know that it's not continuity anymore, but something that he probably never would have gotten over in, in that case. And really, firmly entrenched Zod is somebody who, he, he, no matter what he did, there was no redeeming him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's always nice to have kind of the irredeemable villain. I mean, we talked a little bit about how you could find maybe a shred of redeeming actions within, I mean, Lex Luthor at times. And the interesting thing about Lex in particular, he can be a bad guy and still have some and still have a good act every now and then and he doesn't lose any of his edge or any of his menace because on occasion he has a you know a good action or even a pseudo benevolent one i mean you can just there's some fun things that can be had that you he can do good things and still be a bad guy and then you have zod who is just if he wasn't much of a bad guy before he was banished to the phantom zone that pretty much just drove him insane and now he's irredeemable and out there and I'm actually interested to see what Michael Shannon and uh, Zack Snyder are going to do with him in the upcoming Man of Steel movie. Uh, there was one that you wanted to talk about uh, specifically, and I know we were kind of planning on ending with Zod, but you wanted to talk about, and I can never pronounce this guy's name, but the imp from the fifth dimension, I believe. Mr. So. Mysticulic. That's it. Say it with For those of you following at home, that is spelled M-Z-Y-Z-P-T-L-K, or M-X-Y-Z. PTLK. So forgive me for not trying to pronounce that. I I've been reading too much H.P. Lovecraft lately. My brain is a bit fried when it comes to pronouncing odd things. So let's talk about him and t- talk to me about him and what you like about him as far as being a Superman villain goes. Well, while the call of Cthulhu strikes you, the call of Mixius Pitalik strikes me, Robert. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite favorite characters in all of comics is the the infamous imp from the fifth dimension who is really just the biggest pain in Superman's ass you can imagine because his intentions aren't evil. He doesn't try to really hurt anybody deliberately. He just wants to annoy Superman. He's the little brother that Superman never had. He 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 has unbelievable powers at his disposal. Some have called them magic. Some have called them other dimensional science. Basically, Mixus Pitalik applies to none of the laws of physics, or reality. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. He has this insane godlike amount of power, and he uses it just to annoy Superman. It, it's so amusing to me that he could seemingly do anything he wants, but all he really wants to do is bother this guy, partially because he admires him, and he wants to really see if this guy is as good as he's made out to be, and so he constantly tests him through these annoying challenges, and Get Superman so on edge to the point where you see him snap back a little bit, the way an older brother does it a little brother when he finally has had enough of the little brother tagging along and saying, what about me, what about me, play with me, play with me. 
And that's very much the relationship. And, and, and for years, that's what it's been. It's Mixoplex, 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 however they want to pronounce it, because that's how they pronounce it on the Super Friends cartoon and on the Superman animated series. He, he just, for years, was pictured as this annoyance without any real inclination of true villainy. And so it created in everybody kind of a want to see, like, you know, this guy is so powerful. What happens if he really decides to cut loose at her? And there's always that fear. And even when Mixoplex is doing a little... Mixius Pitalik is doing a little kind of test for Superman that involves Lois somehow. You think maybe he's going to turn this serious, and he might just really mess with Superman and do something terrible. Nope, the whole time he's just been fooling around. Yeah, he's uh, his reality warping powers are... I'm trying to think of uh, something somewhat comparable. I mean, if you're a fan of Marvel, uh, Scarlet Witch has some comparable powers, or uh, I think it's Molecule Man is the other one. I, I, I probably got that last name wrong, but he can just whatever he wants to do. Basically, he can do it, and it's a he's it is it's a little bit crazy that all of this that he's doing is just not serious. It's for his own amusement. He's not actually. I mean, he's not actually trying. It's like oh, I mean, I, I can't even come up with something that's necessarily comparable. I mean, maybe like if you for any MMA fans out there, if you've ever seen the Anderson Silva Forrest Griffin fight, Anderson Silva. I get the feeling he's just kind of goofing around, and the fact that he's able to utterly obliterate Forrest Griffin while doing that is—it's kind of the impression that I get out of this guy. That no, I'm just kind of fooling around. I'm not actually trying. I'm just th- this is kind of a curiosity or an or, or you know an oddity that I like to explore. I'm I'm not actually putting forth any effort into accomplishing anything. I'm just screwing around, and it is absolutely terrifying when you actually consider the amount of. You know, the chaos and the havoc that he could cause, you know, rather simply, when you when you think about it. Yeah, and, and nobody nobody ever really touched on that until one of the greats, Alan Moore, kind of had an idea when DC was publishing Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they were going to restart the history of the DC universe for the first time out of the 18 they've done it since. Uh, he had an idea where they were going to let him publish what would have been in that continuity the last ever Superman story called Whatever Happened to the Tomorrow, and in it, you see various uh, troublesome stages throughout the end of Superman where all of his villains really start attacking him at once. And there's some sad moments in there. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it, which you should have by now because it was published in 1985. Uh, <laughs> so you have uh, the Kryptonite Man at Superman, a full radiation blast, and Crypto the Superdog sacrificing his own life to bite out the, radio- the Kryptonite Man's throat to save Superman and dies of radiation poisoning. And all along the way, somebody's been manipulating everything, and you find out that it was Mixius Fiddlick. And the reason being is that he's bored with annoying Superman, and now he wants to try something new, because for the first 5,000 years of his life, he was interested in only doing good. The next 5,000 years, he was only interested in having fun and being annoying. Now he wants to be evil and see what that's like. And ultimately, he unleashes the full brunt of his power, which locks the entire superhero population outside of the Fortress of Solitude, with a force field they can't break, and you're talking heavy hitters like Green Lantern, Captain Marvel, and basically everybody who's not Superman, not putting a death in it, and Superman imbuing some of his friends who had snuck in with temporary superpowers, and still it's not enough, so the only thing Superman can do is find that trusty old Phantom Zone projector and put him in there. And that kind of shows you the scope of things. The, the Phantom Zone projector is Superman's basically hand of God, where if he has no other recourse, he's going to go to that and just trap you as opposed to killing you or, you know, endangering any more lives. And the fact that Alan Moore 
could think of that is brilliant and it hadn't touched upon before. But it shows you that if they ever get bored with that character, there's a justification that they could do that and really shake Superman's world up and the entire DCU for that matter if they wanted to with somebody who has that much power. But to me, I really like the fact that even though he has all that power, he kind of knows what the limits of it are and what he could really do. And so he chooses to just have fun with it as opposed to really, really be a evil bastard with it. He's just he's just having a good time at anybody else's expense and thinks it's 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 right to do so. And that kind of makes him more evil than anything else because he's got the potential to be such a force for good. And instead, no, I just want to see how I can bother Superman for these 90 days. Well, it, it also kind of makes me wonder, you know, because like you said, he spent, you know, the first, like, 5,000 years of his existence doing nothing, then 5,000 being good, then 5,000 being moderately annoying, and now he wants to spend the next 5,000 being truly evil. I want to know what he did when he was being good. I mean, I, I, I almost can't fault the guy for, okay, I've done good. I spent, you know, a long time doing nothing but good things. I spent a long time doing nothing but trolling people. Now I want to see what it's like to, you know, kill puppies, you know, for want of a better phrase. I mean, it, it's almost hard to fault someone for wanting to at least try everything. At the same time, when he starts becoming evil, you just, God, he's such an evil little bastard, you want him dead. And, and just interferes constantly with just, and we can all relate to this, and I think that's what makes some of these stories good, where you're in the middle of something, and it's something that you've been meaning to do and been putting off for days. Say, say you're vacuuming your house, your carpets and everything, and you get the annoying next-door neighbor who rings your bell and looks in your window and knows your home, and you, they hear the vacuum, and you just can't get rid of them, even though you have something to do that's an important priority task for you. You can't get rid of these annoying neighbors who just don't have a clue. And that's pretty much what Mitch's Piddlick in a lot of ways is to Superman. He's that annoying next door who won't stop talking to you about mindless dribble for their own enjoyment. They think you like too. He's the, the person in line next to you at the supermarket where they have 46 items in front of you and you've got a container of milk and just will blather on to you about God knows what instead of just letting you go ahead with your one container of milk. It, all those little everyday annoyances that we face. The, the clerk at the store who doesn't know how to ring something up because they've been under train and you have to whip there like a schmuck. That makes you feel like rolled into a ball. Yeah, he's uh, he's the force that makes everything annoying around you. Um, if we're going to talk about him, uh, very briefly, I suppose, we should talk about his um, crazy brother. Are you familiar with him at all? Or I'm trying to look up his name Bat here. Are we talking Batmite? No, um, give me a second. Let me see if I can find it. He has this, um, yeah, he's got a crazy brother with a name very similar to his, who's only appeared like once, I think. God, I think I could find this easier. There's so many of these things to go through. Um, okay, well, I look this up so we don't have a bunch of dead air. Um, if you could talk uh, briefly about, since we need another bit of villains, um, the storyline that became Superman versus the Elite, uh, that group of people, including Manchester Black, um, how they kind of fit in as villains, what they push Superman towards. Just talk about that briefly while I look up this guy's name, because it's going to bug me until uh, I figure it out now. Yeah, Superman versus the Elite is one of my, I would say, my three favorite Superman stories, because uh, when I was reading comics, I, I got to a point where everything started to become very grim and gritty, and the anti-hero was big. Characters like the Punisher and Wolverine and Spawn, like we talked about earlier, who kind of killed without remorse, and 
kind of made a lot of people question, well, why can't they just kill all the villains? Wouldn't the world be a better place? So in the, in Superman versus the Elite is kind of the answer to that, where Superman has always done things by the book. There came a group uh, from England, the Elite, led by Manchester Black, who all of which were very powerful in one way or another, and basically they took things to a new level. Rather than you know lock the villains away, they would execute them and do so on television to get people on their side and constantly preached about why what they were doing was right and how Superman kind of was almost soft in a way for kind of letting these people go on and on and on. And what Superman had to do was teach these people and their one-time believers a lesson in morality. And he challenges them to a showdown. You know, I believe it's on Jupiter on an uninhibited area. Either Jupiter or the moon. I, I can't remember for sure. But he I, think it's the, I think the moon is kind of the one they go with, or one of Jupiter's moons. Yeah. Okay, I, I, it winds up back Jupiter's on Earth moon. after a little bit anyway. Yeah, and basically Superman wants... What he does is educate people, you this group, the elite, about, you know, just what it means to actually take a life and the consequences of it when he causes the, the group, the elite, and the entire world to think that they've actually killed Superman. And once they see what happens, and Superman kind of has a little bit of fun with this and ends the ruse and rocks them all away, he comes back and does what Superman does and opens up a righteous can of whoop-ass on them without killing them and doing things again by the book. He kind of wins people over again to why what he's doing is, is right and that nobody should have the right to be judged, jury, and executioner and... That's what separates a, a real hero from just a murderous bag vigilante like, you know, the Punisher. Okay, I found his name. It's uh, Nizuk Muck. He's, uh, he's Nickelplitz's deranged cousin from the same fifth dimension. You only, you only really see him once, but he's actually more powerful than Nickelplitz because he's had more experience with the uh, technology that they're using. He was actually imprisoned in the fifth dimension um, madhouse escaped from there once, caused some problems during the uh, pre-crisis storyline, I think. So that was much to do about nothing as far as me looking it up. I thought he was more involved in that. I was going to say, because that's a character I wasn't really familiar with at all, and I was, I was kind of surprised when he brought it up, and that's why you said brother. I was like, you mean Batmite? No, no, it's a, yeah, it's his cousin who is actually, like, even by terms of the fifth dimension, insane. So he actually locks uh, Mickelplitz and Superman in the fifth dimension at one point together, and they... I think they like wind up working together to get out because you know, he's again he's, he's actually more powerful than Mythical Plitz. They just haven't brought him up too often, which is kind of sad because you know everyone has a crazy cousin. You could kind of have some fun with as far as that goes. Okay, is there any other uh, specific Superman villain that you want to talk about right now? Any? Um, I mean, he, I, we we've kind of gone over the big ones. He has actually we talked about at the beginning a very actually a very impressive Rogues Gallery as far as people that you know people that have opposed him he's got a good solid list of guys that have gone after him um do we want to talk about you know maybe um some of the times when superman has maybe gone dark side because there have been some times uh when exposed to red kryptonite or through manipulation that superman has gone over to the bad side he has been tricked into being a bad guy let's talk real briefly about that then i mean we still have we do have time <laughs> we still have some time to kill so Superman, in one in his rare villainous appearances across you know, whatever medium you choose to discuss, I mean, he is kind of a bad guy in the um, Injustice Gods Among Us uh, game that's out now that I've heard nothing but good things about. So when Superman gets tricked into red kryptonite exposure or kryptonite with tar in it, if, we're, <laughs> if we want to talk about Superman 3, when Superman goes bad, uh, he makes for an interesting villain, I feel so. Let's talk a little bit about that. 
I remember my, my first real exposure to the truly villainous Superman being, uh, and, and I'm not going to include Superman 3, but he, he kind of wasn't villainous as he was kind of almost apathetic in that one. But uh, in, in the Superman animated series, there was a two-part story that finished the show called Legacy, where uh, basically Darkseid, who we talked about before, succeeds in brainwashing Superman and making him his tool of destruction. And Superman kind of almost conquers the Earth, uh, were it not for some timely intervention at his cousin Kara, who kind of snaps him back to reality when he sees her almost dead. But that's a case where you really see how how futile it is to resist Superman if you had to, because they try everything, seemingly everything, and he just easily kind of laughs it off and goes through it. And it's a scary thought that he could be such a destructive force of nature if he chooses to be, and kind of makes you grateful for the Kents in a lot of ways because of their their kind of really modest, simple upbringing of him to be morally righteous no matter what, as opposed to, you know, the idea of, say, the Superman Red Sun storyline where... It's an Elseworlds tale where he landed in communist Russia instead of small Kansas and became a tool for the communist domination of the world. Of course, within the Red Sun, uh, he was still a he was still a more a good guy, which is kind of the which posits the theory that you know Superman was just is just inherently good and you know, no matter the circumstances that he was brought up and he still would have been a force for good and so to see him as a force for evil, it, like you said, it's a little crazy, it's a little eerie and. I mean, in one of the, you know, I mean, he's been exposed to red kryptonite before. I mean, you, you know, he's been, yeah, he was conquered by Darkseid as far as the uh, series you're talking about. But he's also, you know, he's gone uh, a little bit crazy before. And in, you know, what kind of gave rise to the, you know, the internet you know, meme, for lack of a better phrase, that, you know, Batman can beat, anybody, can beat anybody. Batman was the only one who was able to really kind of oppose Superman with any degree of success, which should, you know, speak to you know, the, which not only speaks to the ingenuity of Batman, but if Batman is the only one who can have any degree of success fighting you, that's scary. I mean, because he, Superman can, is opposed by some powerful, powerful guys. I mean, Green Lan- the Lantern Corps, the, you know, he said Kara Zor-El, who in, some ways, who in some ways can be stronger than he is, and nobody can do anything against him. It's, it's an absolutely terrifying concept as far as a bad guy goes. I mean, because what do you do? You know, normally you'd call Superman, and no, you can't. That's just not an option here. So what do you do? Well, that's the funny thing. You brought up the video game Injustice before, and kind of that's that's the situation they're faced with, where Superman is tripped by the Joker into accidentally murdering Lois. Is what happens, and so Superman set up with this, just kind of takes over the world and forms his own government, and some of the heroes stay on his side, some of them rebel against him, and basically that universe's Batman chooses to call Superman from another universe, because that's his only realistic option to try to fight this off. So he still calls Superman, even when there is no Superman to call, because he's Batman, and with enough prep time, he can do anything. With enough, yeah, Batman can beat anybody, provided he has time. Um, you know, since we mentioned it earlier, uh, I believe uh, Sean Lelos and alternate takes had the big superhero elimination tournament. And the only one who beat Batman was Thor. And I think at that point there was also some backlash over Batman being able to beat anybody. But, yeah, uh, although I will I, I had to vote for my boy Thor in that one. I agree. I mean, Superman is one thing. Uh, I think Thor is a completely different animal than Superman in a lot of ways. And I'm not <laughs> – uh, but, again, that's a, that's a different discussion. But, 
yeah, Superman, when he goes bad, it's some scary stuff. And, you know, thank God Batman can call between dimensions and... Sorry, my dog is me. That happens. Thank heavens heavens, uh, that Batman is able to call Superman no matter what. Yeah, you know what, though? No, I changed my answer. When when Superman goes bad, call Thor. That's my answer. Okay, there we go. I'm not sure sure how Thor would do against Superman, though. He would whoop his ass. (laughs) Oh, is there a little bias there? Oh, there's a lot of bias there. He would whoop his ass. JLA Avengers crossover, be damned, that piece of shit. Uh, you know, I was never a huge Thor fan. Uh, I don't know what it was. I could never really get into it. And then I think part of what jump-started my personal interest in Thor was the movie that came out a couple of years ago starring Chris Hemsworth. And God bless Chris Hemsworth because he took someone that talked in almost Shakespearean language and turned him from, you know, what do you think? I mean, I was when I was a younger, I mean, teenage, pre-teenager and early teen years, I was a huge fan of both Greek and Norse mythology, so I knew Thor was a badass. But when I went, but you know, it, my exposure through the comics, I, I hadn't, I don't know, I don't know if it was the language or if it was how they were done, but I couldn't quite connect with them. And then, you know, there's Chris Hemsworth with the hammer knocking out the, dis, knocking out the destroyer and all of a sudden it's like, yes, I get it. Yeah, he, he he helped bridge that character to people who I don't think really truly really understood it before, and that that's a big credit to him and Kenneth Branagh. But now we're talking about Superman villains, so let's leave the Superman ting the ass kicking contest out of it. Although Superman and the Hulk, yeah, there, there's a fun fight. Only if you want to piss off Radulich. <laughs> I might have to do that sometime. Like the next time he's on here, I'll just towards the end I'll. Th- the next time I'm on, or next time I'm on the Ground and Pound show with him, I'll just throw out there at random intervals that Superman beats the Hulk, just straight face to see what kind of reactions I can get out of him. Might be amusing. Uh, he's, he's coming back from vacation, so I think we need to get him right as soon as he gets in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he won't be back on Sunday though. I'll be hosting again Sunday, so if you could please call in again, I'd appreciate it. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll nobody, do it again for sure. Nobody wants to listen to me nonstop for you know an hour or so. It's not hey, I've, I've been in that boat before. Where I've done an hour and a half show myself. It is, it is it is far from easy, but I looked back on the one hour show I did, and I, you at least have a halfway decent card. I had UFC 147 one week, which was horrible. I wish that on nobody. Hey, you know, at least if you had 147, we you could just do nothing but complain about how crappy it was. You'd be surprised how old that gets quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Not with 147, it wouldn't. That one, oh, so bad. Okay, so uh, since we're about ready to wrap up here, um, what do you think? You know, since, to kind of reel this back on track, we're talking Superman villains. You know, what do you think has made some of the the good ones? I mean, because Superman, we talked before about how there were a couple that are, you know, substandard. You know, you have uh, Titan, the monkey who shoots kryptonite beams from his eyes, or Oh, there's just some of them that are just so awkward. What was that? The prankster. The toy maker. I mean, you can we can go on and we can list some bad ones. So what what to your mind makes a good one? What really gets a what makes a, a villain that's opposed to Superman? What makes them memorable? What really gets them to kind of stick around within your mind and within even you know the universe? Because some of them they're one and done, and we're all grateful for it at times. I think it goes back a little bit to what we kind of talked about at the top of the show, where you're never going to truly be able to test Superman's physical abilities 
quite so much uh, unless you're a real, real force of nature type villain like Doomsday, like Darkseid. So really, I think the big thing is whether when you can get Superman to have to, to kind of seed of doubt him a little bit and really make him question whether or not he's capable of stopping you or how he's going to be able to stop you, and, and, or or at the least not, which is to really get under his skin and make him angry. And you know, somebody like Lex who's been able to do that in seemingly every regard uh, is is why he's such a great villain in many ways. Uh, Lex is kind of the exception too because he's also something that could have easily you know, Superman could have turned into by, you know, just hanging his superiority above everybody's head. But, you know, villains like Brainiac, you know, who can really challenge Superman on several levels as opposed to just one, where maybe they, maybe he can't match up with him punch for punch, but he can do something else to him. Or, uh, you know, some, some of the better villains like Zod, who can challenge Superman all around. When you've got more than one threat to a guy and you've established that and can do it repeatedly, I think that's what's really going to make you a great villain in terms of a guy like Superman, especially, who can seemingly do anything. So you have to really be ingenuitive to challenge him in one way or another. And he, even to a lesser extent, guys like Metallo, who maybe don't all, always operate on their own, or they, maybe they're under the behest of somebody else's commands, but they have ways to get at Superman and more than just one. Metallo, for example, kryptonite heart, can shoot kryptonite and emit kryptonite radiation, but he's also a strategist and can get at Superman in various ways, knowing the relationship with Lois, you know, those things that he can use against him. So I think any time with Superman where you have somebody who can either make him doubt himself or pose multiple threats to him, I think that's what really is the key to becoming uh, a challenging, capable villain in his universe. I agree that you, you said kind of it all in. You need someone that, you know, because Superman, on the physical front, you know, there's all of like two guys, in, in like Darkseid and Doomsday, who on a pure physical front can match up with him. You have to go around, you have to attack him from other angles. And I mean, personally, when Lex Luthor had the entire world fooled into thinking he'd rehabilitated and got himself elected president, I thought that was a very interesting storyline just because. Here's Superman and, you know, the Daily Planet, more or less, tell, trying to tell the world, no, he's a bad guy. And everyone else is kind of bought into the the Lex Express, to use another <laughs> professional wrestlingism. Oh, he Sorry, uses the red, white, blue bus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just interesting to see him kind of deal with that, where everyone else is like, oh, you know, you're still Superman, you're still awesome. But I think you're wrong about Lex Luthor. I think you're a little bit prejudiced, and... To the credit of Superman, when he was right, again, as he he didn't lord it over everybody and say, you know, you were I was right, you were wrong, stop being stupid. He still kind of went along with, you know, he still has that undeterrable, that unwavering kind of faith in humanity that makes him, you know, such a great foil for a great villain is someone who, you know, has kind of the unerring faith, but if you can shake it or even kind of shake it a little bit, you just it makes you so much more memorable. And Superman, you know, here I don't refer to villains as foils. I refer to heroes as foils because, uh, you know, a, a great hero is nothing without a great villain. Superman without Lex Luthor is just not Superman. I mean, I'm sorry. He's just not as interesting. He's not as enduring. You need Lex Luthor if you're going to be Superman. It just has to be. So is there anything you want to plug, Pat? We're down to the last couple of minutes. So what's coming up with you this week? Uh, you know, I've, I've been trying to get my comic podcast off the ground. Um haven't been able to get in touch with Steve Gustafson. I'm going to re-reach out to Sean Willis this week, and hopefully we can set something up. And that way I can still contribute to 411 other than just guesting on here every so often when 
nobody else can fill the shoes of the guest host and staying on 411 ground and pound every Sunday with you, Mark, and Jeff. Uh, if you ever get that off the ground, I'd be very interested in it. I'm not. I'm certainly not an aficionado of comic books like I feel I am in other areas, but I am interested in them. I do, you know, read about them. I haven't bought one in years, but I do you try play to keep Avengers up. A lot. I do. Yes, I do. And the Red Skull uh, summarily kicked my ass and escaped. That's where I am in that game. Uh, I ran out well, of Unstable Eye, so. Hey, I ran out. I had him. I think I had him, but I ran out of uh, the purple ISO 8, and I couldn't go back to fight him the last couple of times I would have needed. So back to power leveling Tony Stark. I got to get him to nine, I think. I, I believe I have taken the wrong approach, and that I've kind of got all of my heroes at a, at a half decent level. They're all like three or four, and I I think I need you know it's time I got somebody really buffed up so that they can always kind of hang and take the brunt of the fight. Yeah, it's, but, it's, yeah, you gotta have it, since we're gonna, if we're gonna talk about those, uh, I did. I found a really kind of fun game uh, for on mobile devices. On uh, in my case, the iPad. Um, there's a Marvel event going on there. Uh, there's a game. It's pretty cheap. It's like two bucks. And you start off as the Hulk. I think you eventually unlock one with Captain America. They have more planned. Hang on a second. Let me find its name so that I can plug it properly because I've had a lot of fun playing it. You call it. it just says it. It just says Avengers on my thing, which is kind of odd but if you have an ipad and have a couple of bucks it's a fun game look it up hard to go wrong for that much money oh for my personal plugs this saturday i will be doing live coverage for ufc 161 if you're an mma fan and don't want to pay for this card like any rational human being i've got you covered on 411mania.com in the mma section my weekly column locked in the guillotine comes out this friday i will be Reviewing UFC on Fuel TV 10, where the night of submissions, there were a lot of them. Sadly, no guillotine chokes. I was disappointed. One sweet knee bar, though. Uh, I will be reviewing that. I will also be previewing UFC 161 and talking about some news that came out. There's always some fun news. I will be, I am still, uh, interim host of the 411 Radio Ground and Pound show every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern. I will be welcoming Pat. 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. where I am. I apologize. It's 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, same channel. Uh, we do take call-ins, so if you want to call in, please do so. I will be welcoming back Pat. I don't know if Jeff Harris will stop by or not. He knows he's welcome. Anyone who has something they want to say, feel free to call in if you're an MMA fan. Pat, thanks again for coming by. Great to have you. And when I do a Dracula one in the near future, you've insisted that I bring you on, so... I will, if I, assuming I do it in one shot, it will just be you. If I break it into parts, I might have to find someone else just for the sake of variety. But when I do Dracula, you're definitely invited. We will set that up because you decided to be that guy and say you had to be here for Dracula. I, I had to be that guy. I hated to do it, but somebody has. It's all right. I mean, actually, when I first did this, I wanted to do Dracula in the very beginning, but various other, but, you know, circumstances being what they were, it got changed. I did part one of Terminator with Radulich, and part two is, it's coming down the pipe, folks, at some point within this decade. We're just not sure. I can sure. wait seven years like James Cameron did. I might. You know, I can I can always do that. Um, so, yeah, I will be doing Dracula in the near future. I think that's an awesome one. I'll be glad to have you back. That's all of my plugs. I believe that's everything upcoming. So, for Pat Mullen, the man who used to write the blueprint and now just kind of hangs around doing awesome stuff whenever we need him, I'm Robert Winfrey. Remember, folks, light is only bright because of shadows. Villains make life interesting. I will see you next time.